at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, October 30th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and we have an exciting hour for you. Not only because we have great show topics, but we also have Luke Guerrero back with us. Thanks for being here, Luke. Happy Monday, everybody. There we go. And uh, today we are going to run down what the important factors to consider are uh, within the market today, within the economy, and the investment universe. And our job is to educate you on all of this and so that you have some actionable material to go out there and make better decisions with your money. And we're going to do this with uh, an unbiased perspective developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. Now we're going to talk about the market performance and we're going to run down some show topics, but right after we answer our first listener question now. Hey, I'm trying to reach Justin, Steve, or Luke. I'm listening to Friday's show and I understand you guys are talking about Phillips tobacco compared to Altria. I got BTI. Do you think I'd be better off getting out of BTI than British tobacco and going into Phillips? That's my question. Love the show, guys. I'll listen for your answer. Thank you. Uh, I think the simple answer is yes. Uh, Philip Moore, you know, a lot of people are going to look at uh, British tobacco saying it's 9.5% dividend. You're looking at MO, which was talked about last week, and that is a 9.7% dividend, and Philip Morris sits down at 58 and you, uh, a lot of people just simply stop there, and they say, I want the higher yielding security, but if you look at the history of the businesses, Philip Morris is the best performing. Not only that, they have a lead in a heated tobacco, so they have uh, avenues to kind of diversify their business, whereas Philip Morris and uh British tobacco, uh, they're lagging behind uh, Philip Morris. So, you know, you kind of get what you pay for here, Luke. Doesn't that make sense to you? Yeah, that does make sense. I can see why British American tobacco can be a little bit exciting. Its price to book is 0.7 right now, so some may see it overvalued. And over the past three months, its strength relative to the overall market, it's actually had some some decent momentum, but I think there's some other good opportunities, like you mentioned. Yeah, and if you compare it to Philip Morris... It's, it actually has positive revenue growth. Last Basically, the last eight quarters, Altria had negative revenue growth every single quarter, whereas BTI, you're talking about two quarters in a row. Well, it's a, it's a foreign company, so they only report every six months. But this last one, they were up 9% uh, on revenue, earnings up 14%. So certainly a much better footing than Altria. But if I'm picking between the three, Philip Morris is definitely the best. Even though it pays a lower dividend, its balance sheet's better and its overall business is just a higher quality. All right. 
That's our first call, but we have many more on deck for you over the next 45 minutes. And time permitting, we're going to get to a few show topics. Our main focus point looks into the story set up by this question. U.S. GDP grew at an annual pace of 4.9% in the third quarter. And while the GDP report could give the Federal Reserve some impetus to keep policy tight, traders are still pricing in a 96% chance of no interest rate hike. So we'll talk about... GDP growth and inflation, third quarter market report, and 2023 U.S. gross domestic product announcement. We also have some other topics on the docket. One is in regards to the Federal Reserve announcing their plans for, sorry, not the Federal Reserve, the Treasury Department announcing their plans for borrowing this quarter and next. We had one big announcement this afternoon, and we have another one coming up on Wednesday that is even more important than the Fed rate decision on Wednesday as well. So uh, we want to focus on that. Also, earnings season. We are in the midst of earnings season, and I know you can't really tell, but it is certainly Better than expected. If you look at the numbers, overall, better than expected. And lastly, the government studies wealth in the country every three years. And this latest report tells us a lot about what the pandemic did, right? Because this, the last time they did this was in 2019. They just did one for last year. And there's and they just published that report. This is the survey of consumer finances from the Federal Reserve. And we'll, we're going to dig into that and uh, let you know how well different parts of the income brackets are doing as well as different age brackets. Okay, So that's what's on the docket for us today. We also have some voice bank questions. One is on ArcelorMittal, MT, and then the dollar strength. We're going to also fit in an iTunes review question and our perspective, which looks at cryptocurrencies. Now let's talk about the market performance today. Luke, we we hit support in the, on the major indices last at the end of last week on Friday, and we had a nice bounce today in the midst of earnings season, despite Tesla being down nearly five percent. But you had Amazon up almost four uh, percent. There was a lot of movements in the markets both ways, but overall, it was certainly positive. Yeah, it was positive. Like you said, it was led by those large caps, with the Russell two thousand only being up roughly 55 basis points compared to the S&P 500, which was up 1.2%. I think a lot of the market activity day was driven by a lack of escalation in the Middle East over the weekend, uh, as well as those treasury numbers coming in a little bit lower than people expected. And like you mentioned, and what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the show, uh, earnings being not as bad as some people assumed. Yeah, uh, oil was down today on the back of a Middle East situation that I would say it's not getting better, but it's not getting worse. So for, for right now, that's at least a positive uh, for the overall oil market to, to bring the, those prices down a bit. And so a lot of those smaller cap names are in that energy space. Uh, you had re- interest rates. The 10-year was up three basis points. And did, we, did that announcement come... In the middle of the market day, I'm trying to remember. I think it did, right? It came out it about came noon at 3 p.m. Eastern, so that would be noon yeah. our time. Yeah, so that did push interest rates down a little bit later in the day, but still closed up three basis points on the 10-year. The dollar was down for most of the day, and obviously that's going to be good for asset prices in general. So that was the market today. All right, now we're heading into 
We're heading into our first break. So we're ready for your questions at 888-99-CHART. Get ready for the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. The Wealth Webinar will be presented online and free of charge, but you have to register in advance to reserve your spot. How could the next recession differ from previous events? With the right strategies, you can safeguard your investments and also seize unique opportunities. So join Invest Talk hosts Justin Klein and Luke Guerrero of KPP Financial as they take you through the maze of mysteries involved with investing in times of recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th from 1 to 2 p.m. Pacific Time. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. I am concerned about the strength of the dollar, the devaluation, and wonder if you have any advice as to how to hedge for that. What kind of investment, ADRs, or what is it that I can do? Thank you. Is she asking if she's worried about the value of the dollar going down or up? I can't tell. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Um, because she said strength of the dollar, we can assume maybe that she meant she's worried about how a strong dollar may affect U.S. investment. Asset. Yeah, well, well, I think just asset prices in general. I've talked many times about how strong dollar breaks things, right? When the world runs on dollars and you have to produce dollars in order to pay back debt, to pay bills, et cetera, a higher value of the dollar makes that more difficult worldwide. It's harder for them financial system because dollars are, it means dollars are in a scarce supply, right? St standard supply and demand. Um, so, you know, is the dollar going to hell in a handbasket? No, you know, it's not going down. I, I also don't think it's going to break out near term either. Uh, you look at the chart and it has kind of gone sideways. The momentum from the July through October period has now gone sideways and it looks like momentum is waning. So I do think the dollar is headed lower, but those that say the dollar is going to meet its demise in the near term, I don't think that's true. Um, but if you do see the dollar continue to power higher here, that will break things. It's more to me about what you avoid than what you actually buy. Now, obviously you could say, Oh, the dollar's getting stronger. The Fed's going to tighten policy, and that's why the dollar's getting stronger. Um, then you buy maybe short-term treasuries. Uh, I'm, I really need clarity on her question, Luke. I, I'm still not trying to. I'm still struggling on a way to answer it. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, so maybe call and be a little more specific with with your question. All right, eight 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 ninety nine chart eight eight nine nine two four two seven eight. Let's play two in a row from the Invest Talk Voice Bank at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hey, good evening, guys. This is James from Georgia. I was trying to give you a call about 
an ETF I have, ticker symbol B N like November O B N O, which is the United States Brent Oil Fund. I've had it for a little bit, got a little bit of it, and I'm just trying to ask it's a commodities focused category. And do you feel my money is better in play? Do I have a better chance for growth going forward by holding this? Or do you think perhaps I would be better off putting it in XLE, which I already hold, or I even have a uranium ETF? Curious what you think. I would appreciate your analysis, and I'll listen for your answer on the show. Thanks. All right, this is BNO, and this is an ETF that really tracks Brent crude. There's USO, which is the WTI uh, price here in the United States. Brent crude is uh, in Europe, and this is going to be more of a play on geopolitical concerns in the Middle East, in Ukraine, uh, in just the European region in general. And so that's that's what you're trying to to play. Uh, I always say, if I'm going to invest in commodities, then you probably want well-run commodity producers because in the longer run, you're going to do much better with them. Now, there's obviously more risk there, but a lot depends on your exposure. You said you already have XLE. This would bring your overall exposure risk down by diversifying into the actual price of oil versus adding to your equity exposure. So if you want to increase your risk, then XLE probably is a better way to go. I rather look by some of the better individual names within the EMP space. What about you? I would agree with that. I'm looking at this fund right now. It's, it's expense ratio is 1%, which seems really expensive to me considering they just buy front month futures contracts. Yeah. So it's not really a complex strategy and it, they probably just roll it so they don't actually have to take delivery of those oil holdings and it of course it underperformed the S&P GSEI crude oil index by almost 2% net of fees. So mm-hmm. it's a really expensive fund that isn't doing much in my opinion to justify that management fee just given how the strategy is run off of futures. Yeah. yeah, and that's what happens with a lot of these commodity-based ETFs. They're just rolling futures and there's cost to that and cost to roll that and that kind of eats into overall returns longer term so i only see these as trading vehicles i would not be buying and holding them really so uh yeah i I would be buying individual names if you don't want to do the research xle is just fine all right we're going to a quick break please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the invest talk voice bank if you're listening via the live stream or on am 1220 radio in the silicon valley area you can call now at 888-99-CHART things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 888- 99 chart. 
Now, my focus point looks into the story set up by this question. U.S. GDP grew at an annual pace of 4.9% in the third quarter. And we're going to talk about GDP growth and inflation, the, the third quarter market report, and the 2023 U.S. GDP product, and our gross domestic product, excuse me. Now, U.S. economy grew this summer at the fastest pace since 2021. Consumers really picked up speed. And overall, inflation-adjusted annual rate of growth was 4.9%, more than double the second quarter growth. And now, Luke, Americans really achieved this level of spending mainly by digging into savings. And the big question going forward will be, will they and can they continue to do the same? No, that's an excellent point. I think the thing that was most surprising about this figure is that, what, 68% of it was related to consumer spending habits. And that really indicates two things. One, consumers have a lot of faith in job security. And two, consumers have been spending more on a discretionary basis, which means maybe they have a little bit more uh, faith in the future of the economy than what we've seen in the media. Yeah, and in the third quarter, the consumer outlays rose 4% on an annual rate. That's up from 0.8% in the second quarter. And they spent on travel, concerts, and movies. So as you said, a lot of discretionary items overall. Now, if you dig into what corporations are saying, and I like to look at certain companies, FedEx is a good one, but also Visa because they can see kind of consumer spending habits. They see so far that spending has remained pretty stable and they don't expect a recession. Now, one other aspect that boosted boosted the the growth in the in the third quarter was the uh, was inventories. Inventories grew and they contributed more than one percentage point to growth. So you had the combination of better consumer spending, about four percent growth, and then buildup of inventories. And obviously, that could be given back in future quarters. And government expenditures also rose four point six percent in the quarter. So. Uh, if you look at private sector growth, excluding inventories, that was only up about 3.3%. But still, 33 is a pretty good number. So overall, I think this was a good quarter, but not as good as the headline is making out to be. And also, it's backwards looking. So really, it's about what the future is going to look like. And you know, so far, this quarter, the Atlanta Fed GDP now is at 2.3%. For the, third, for the fourth quarter. Obviously, we're just a, a, a month in, so a lot can, can certainly change. So, Luke, do you think that we'll see this level of growth again anytime soon? No, I don't think it'd be reasonable to expect at least the next quarter, the next couple quarters, to exhibit the kind of growth that we saw in the previous quarter. And that's primarily because what you're seeing is drawing down of some of that pandemic savings. And those inventories is probably just bulking up because of weak inventories in the wake of the pandemic and in the wake of the supply chain crisis. So if consumers stop spending and those inventories aren't depleted as much, you have a double-edged sword of consumer spending part of the equation going down and the business inventory investment part of the equation going down as well, which would drag down overall GDP growth. Yeah, and after tax, inflation-adjusted income decreased 1% in the third quarter and there was a, a big jump in the first half and savings 
as a share of income fell to 3.8% from 5.2. So you can see there that a lot of this was digging into savings as well as the rate of savings uh, dropping overall. Residential investment, which was weak early part of the year, that actually was up 3.9% in the third quarter. So a lot of things kind of lining up to uh, make the third quarter a solid one. But once again, this is backwards looking. So it's easy to talk about and it's always interesting to see where the strength came from, especially when you're saying, oh, the consumer might weaken going forward. I think there's some credence to that, but also people still have a lot of money. So uh, I, I think they're and they're employed. So I, I doubt that that's going to shift dramatically one way or the other. All right. Now let's play another voice bank question now, provide the answer after the break. Hello, Steve and Justin. This is uh, Yannick from Denmark. I have a question about a stock called ArcelorMittal. Take a simple MG. It is very low priced now. And it's a steel producer, so it's an industrial company. should be really good in these times. I'd sure like to hear your opinion. Many thanks. Bye. All right, I guess we're going to break. We're going to answer it after this quick break. Now, in the next Invest Talk, we'll look into the story set up by this statement. There is an investing guide for every life stage. Everyone's situation is different, but there are model scenarios to examine and pitfalls to avoid. That's Dari tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrera, and we're ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. Invest Talk is always made better when our listeners contribute their questions. So tell your friends and family members they can interact in real time with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein during the Invest Talk live stream program between 4 and 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Or they can leave their questions anytime 24 7 in the Invest Talk voice bank. Remember, for live or recorded questions, the number never changes. 888-99-CHART. We're going to pivot to MT, which is the question before the break, and that was Arcelor Mittal. And this is a 
company that's uh, fairly worldwide, uh, but their business is suffering. Earnings are supposed to go down 57% this year and down 15% again next year. And Luke, why don't you tell the listeners why that is? Yeah, well, primarily a lot of the company's revenue is coming from Europe. And I see that there's been a little bit of a scandal recently in Eastern Europe in which they've had several mines from an affiliate uh, have disasters in which Kazakhstan is nationalizing those mines. But pulling back a little bit and looking on the fundamentals of the company, even though its price has been falling, I'm not sure it's exactly where you would want to buy it. And that's because its net margin is around 5%, which is significantly lower than the rest of its competition. Yeah, and if you look historically in its earnings, they're all over the place. Remember, this is a steel company, and it's a price taker because it does not have any control over what prices its steel is really sold for. And if you look at the geographical reach, only about 10% of their business is here in the U.S. The rest is all over the world. Uh, about 50% is in Europe. Uh, what is Brazil? I know that's significant too, right, Luke? Brazil's around 10%. Around 10%, yeah. And so, you know, that is uh, an area that is obviously struggling uh, f- uh, economically. And then steel is very energy intensive. And so if you're producing in Europe, you know, your costs continue to go up. So uh, and then, you know, the manufacturing business within in, in uh, Germany is certainly struggling. So I'm certainly passing on this. Uh, I would move on and find a better name. I know it looks cheap, but looking forward and looking at the risks within the the business uh, and the technicals, which are, ter- are terrible, uh, I would certainly pass. Hi, this is Kyle Woodyard from Michigan. And I had a question about Fortinet, FT, NT. It looked like it fit all the... Um, metrics that you look for uh, is growing has good uh, profitability pretty much everything except it has a large debt burden and i was wondering if it was still fine uh, to buy that stock because i also looked at the interest coverage ratio and it had a good interest coverage ratio and also looked at the cash flow to debt ratio and that ratio was also good so I was wondering if, even though it had a, a large debt burden, was it still worth a buy? And I would like to also know, what is your price target on the stock if you do like it? Thanks. Bye. This is a company that is it's a certainly a growth name, right? It's been on a growth trajectory for many years. Earnings in 2016 were only $0.15. Cents. This year, this does make $1.53 up 29% this year and 20% increase next year. Now, I know the caller talked a lot about debt. And overall, I really don't see much debt to speak of, compared, especially compared to its market cap of $44 billion. I see long-term debt just shy of a billion. So I don't think debt is the issue here, Luke. I think it's the multiples that it's trading at. Currently, forward-looking price-sales ratio is over eight times. That's pretty rich. 
Yeah, it is pretty rich. What's also rich is its price to book value, which is 137.50. Now, I will mention its debt, even the debt it does have, is pushed out pretty far. A lot of it's coming due in 2031. A lot of it's coming due in 2026. So I think the callers may be identifying the wrong issue here. And the issue is more what you talked about, which is the multiples it's currently trading at compared to what it's actually making. Yeah, and this had rough earnings back in August, and the price sank from about $75 per share all the way down to 56 and it basically is trading right there uh, where, the, where it closed uh, on earnings day. So it's been consolidating sideways for over two months now, and that is what we call a call bearish action. That's a bear flag, and so when you have a, a large down move, consolidation, that usually is ready for that next leg lower. And when you're priced at the multiples that it's trading at, then you are priced for perfection. And that's really what happens here. You know, last quarter, earnings were up 58%, which sounds amazing. But if you're looking at the previous quarter, it was only up 79% or was up 79%. So that's a deceleration in growth. Same with on the sales side. Previous quarter, it was up 32% year over year, last quarter, only up 26% year over year. So what you're seeing is when you have a growth name that the market's pricing a certain level of growth going forward, and you don't hit that, even though it might be a good level of growth, still be 26% revenue growth is still a pretty nice pace. The market's going to re-rate that stock lower. And I think that's what you're, you're going to continue to see here. So the issue is not with Fortinet on the debt side certainly fine their free cash flow is about two billion so i have no issue there it's just the multiple that it's trading at and the technicals which look pretty poor so uh, i pass on fortinet and arcelor let's all right now our perspective today looks at cryptocurrency when did it start and where is it now and where is it going now for everyone out there Luke is probably more of a cryptocurrency expert than I am. Would you say that, Luke? I don't know if expert's the right word. I would say you are more versed in the space, or maybe you follow the space. I follow it more for entertainment purposes than for educational Uh, purposes, I would say. Yeah, there are are a lot of great stories that, that come out of the crypto space that are really lessons that you can learn. But for everyone else, cryptocurrency is, is a digital currency designed to work as a medium of exchange through a computer network that is not relying on any central authority, which eliminates the need for traditional intermediaries. And coin ownership records are simply stored on a ledger. A ledger. Now, despite the name, cryptocurrencies are not actually considered currencies. The government actually classifies them as commodities, some are securities, but most of them are classified as commodities. Right, Luke? Yeah, that's correct. And I think what's interesting about this story is that cryptocurrencies are not really that new. As far back as 1983, American cryptographer David Chom conceived of a type of cryptographic electronic money called eCash. And in 1995, he implemented it through what is called DigiCash, an early form of cryptographic electronic payments. So Bitcoin was not the first and is not the first cryptocurrency that's out there. And in 1996, the National Security Agency, the NSA, actually published a paper entitled How to Make a Mint, the Cryptography of Anonymous, Cryptography of Anonymous Electronic Cash, describing a cryptocurrency system. And it was first published in an MIT mailing list 
and later in 97 in the American Law Review. I thought that's one of the most interesting parts of this story is that so many people get caught up in it, but it's really not as new as most people think it is. Now, well, some reaches of the crypto space believe that perhaps it was actually created by somebody in one of the intelligence services, Bitcoin. If you want to go down what, the conspiracy rabbit hole. For what I, I honestly could not comprehend their conspiracy, so Got I'm not it. going to go that way. But I will say that some people do believe that given the history of where cryptocurrency came from that you just mentioned, that the intelligence services had a hand in crafting Bitcoin. Well, you could say, if you think of going back to, once again, uh, conspiracies, Iran-Contra, and the things that the NSA has done throughout the years, maybe it gives them an, an avenue to to make moves without a lot of detecting by the government or by individuals, potentially. But nonetheless, today, Bitcoin is now on the rise as of late. And a lot of the recent move is because of an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF, that has still not been approved, but it was listed with the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. And a lot of people are assuming that that was the last step before regulatory approval. Would you agree with that, Luke? Do you think that's a good indication that this will get approved? I don't necessarily think that's a good indication, given that if any company is going to attempt to list an ETF, it's also going to register it with the DTCC. I think more of an indication that if any ETF was going to be approved, BlackRock's would be, is that they probably wouldn't go to all the trouble of filing for an ETF without knowing first that it's going to be approved, given the size of that company and its influence on markets. And so you would say that the indicator that this will get through is more to do with just who's going through the process, which is which is BlackRock, versus uh, this DTC uh, registration. Exactly. And you know what's interesting though is there have been other Bitcoin ETFs approved in the past. This one is a little bit different, but it also gave near-term rise to the price, and then it just fell soon after. So a lot of the recent price movement uh, based on newsiness, shall you say, uh, is likely to be given back once you get that news one way really or the other. And so uh, I think this is kind of an, an area that there, there's likely a lot of too, too much fear uh, within that space and the price is probably a bit too high at the current time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's one of those typical sell the news type events. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll see what the news will be in the coming. Think we'll get news by the end of the year. Uh, well, people are saying that we should be getting news by at least January. I would expect it would come come in the next three, four, or five months. Okay. All right. Well, let's stop there, and we do have more on this topic, a lot more, and we'll pick that up in part two tomorrow. All right. Let's touch a bit on a story that I think is far more important, and this is the U.S. Treasury, and. We know we have the Fed meeting coming up. They start their meeting tomorrow, and they announce their policy decision on Wednesday. And they're not going to do anything. They're going to leave late rates where they are. Where they are, they may hint at future policy path that my guess would be a bit more dovish than they have been talking for most of the summer. But that's TBD. But what's most important in today's day and age is actually another piece of data that comes out on Wednesday, and that is the plan for government borrowing. And 
we actually had one piece of news that came out today, and that is the borrowing estimates. Now, Wednesday is about how are they going to borrow, meaning are they going to issue X amount in two-year notes, in seven-year notes, in you know three-month treasuries uh, bills, et cetera. So that's, that will influence, I think, the parts of the curve and where those interest rates go. You know, July 31st, the Fed announced a huge amount of treasury issuance in the back half of the year. And this is an update. And so the news today said that they're going to borrow about $776 billion in the fourth quarter. That's actually $76 billion less than they anticipated in July, and mainly that's because of delayed tax payments. So here in California and in other states, you were able to postpone paying taxes until September, October, and now that's starting to flow into the Treasury. So that's why this quarter will be slightly better than expected. But the first quarter of next year, it's going to likely be $816 billion dollars and that would be a record for the period just as the fourth quarter will be a record as well and then in the third quarter of that we just uh, that we just went through the treasury issued 1.01 trillion dollars ending the quarter with in the treasury general account 657 billion this is the largest net debt issuance during the third quarter period so we're about to have three consecutive quarters of issuance, uh, record issuance. And then the question on Wednesday will be, how are they going to go about that? In the third quarter, they issued a lot of uh, treasury uh, notes that have coupons that are have longer maturities. And so the question will be, will they continue to do that? Or will they go back to the short end of the curve and issue there? But that just means that going forward, they're going to have to continue to roll that. Uh, what is your take from this announcement, Luke? I think the most interesting part is just the degree to which uh, some assume they're willing to have borrowing in shorter-term U.S. debt, so around 22% versus their typical 15 to 20% range. But I think that's more emblematic just of the appetite that investors currently have for short-dated treasuries given uh, you know stock market performance and what else is going on uh, in the broader economy. Well, the demand on the short end is money market funds in a lot of cases, right? We have record amounts of dollars in money market accounts trying to pick up extra yields. A lot of individuals are buying short-term T-bills and things like that. And so that's something to to consider why they might push more of those issuance uh, into the short end of the curve. But like you said, you're already pushing up against that 15 to 20% range that they the Treasury has adopted as kind of their goal uh, for those those uh, the, the the split of debt issuance. Um, and then I actually think they will lean on the short end, mainly because they've seen the long end moved up, right? The Treasury and the Fed, I think, are kind of in communication. And I don't think that the Fed wants to see the long end of that curve move up too much more than it's already at without understanding the economic implications. You know, we've seen this big move and we're still kind of assessing, the Fed's still kind of assessing what kind of impact that will have in the fourth uh, quarter and in the first half of next year. And so that will be interesting to look at. I think the most important news event coming out of the Treasury or the Fed uh, on Wednesday. So we'll be on the lookout for that. Uh, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and we have one goal each and every weekday, and that's to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 99 Chart. 
helping you preserve and grow your capital during the chaos of a recession. Tell your friends about the next Invest Talk Wealth Webinar Profit Amidst Chaos Strategic Investing in a Recession. It's happening live, online, and free Thursday, November 9th. Go to investtalk.com and register now. Hey, Stephen Justin, it's Art from Tucson. I'm looking at um, Honeywell International, H O N. Looks like it might be at a good buying point here, and I'd like to know what you think about it here, whether we should wait a little longer or um, whether there are internal problems with the company. Looks like it beat earnings and still dropped. And uh, I don't know. looks pretty good to me. Wondering what you guys think. And I'll listen on the podcast. Thank you. All right. Looking at Honeywell International, $120 billion market cap. So certainly a mega cap name, but a very industrial conglomerate, shall we say. They operate four business segments, aerospace, building technologies, performance materials and technologies, and safety and productivity solutions. And they have pretty strong balance sheet. Their times interest earned is 18.6. Very, very healthy there. Not a huge dividend, but you know, nice 2.4% looking forward. The technicals are at some major support here, right around 175 or so. Could go as low as 168 and still be uh, at support. So I like the profitability here. Luke, do you see anything that's catching your eye? Yeah, well, all on the positive side, its net margin is 14%. All of its margins before you know tax interest, they're all higher than their industry averages. It's trading at multiples that are well below the average that it's typically traded out over the past five years. And like many large companies, it's managed to push most of its debt out far into the future, which means it's not going to be subject to some of the interest rate volatility that we could see in the next year or so. So everything that I'm seeing is looking pretty good. Yeah. In long term, their return equity is typically in the high 20% range, low 30% uh, on average. So uh, I really like this name and it's near support. So I like what you're saying, you know, not a high dividend payer, but I much rather own something like this that has good balance sheet, will benefit from deglobalization and onshoring supply chains uh, and could grow its dividend over time. So uh, I, I'm going to give Honeywell a thumbs up. All right, lastly, let's touch a bit on earnings. You talked about Honeywell beating earnings, and that has been a consistent theme throughout this quarter. The S&P 500 is on track to post a 2.7% year-over-year increase in profits, and that is blending both reported results and consensus analyst estimates going forward, and that would mark the first earnings growth in four quarters. So, Luke, the earnings recession is over, but the market's not really acting like it. That's kind of like saying there's no traffic and then the traffic appears. But I do agree with you that the earnings recession doesn't seem to be as depressed as many people thought it was going to be. But I think what's really going on in the market is that the overarching macro themes are washing out any of the positive surprises that we've had in a lot of these blue chip companies. Yeah, and you're seeing that with the Metas of the world and the uh, Googles of the world, which are obviously two companies that are highly reliant on the overall economy and ad spending. So if ad, if, if the economy is taking another maybe leg lower, maybe more deceleration, shall we say, that's going to impact those companies. And they're the ones that are really getting hit the most. So it's not just about, it just shows you, it's not just about the past earnings, but what is 
the expectations going forward. And so far, what's interesting is that the companies that beat estimates on average have seen their shares fall on average of 1% in the two days after earnings from the two days prior to earnings. That's compared to the five-year average of a 0.9% advance. So you're talking nearly 200 basis point difference in returns than what is typical from companies that beat earnings. And I think also this is a, showing a sign that maybe the Magnificent Seven, the new, the new name for the FANG names, Magnificent Seven, are they priced for perfection? And therefore, it's difficult for them to find further advances. I think that could be part of the story as well. Yeah, it certainly could. I mean, these are some of the most well-tracked, most analyzed companies in the history of the world. So yep. a lot of eyes on it makes surprises less effective. Exactly. All right. That about does it. I'm Justin Klein with Luke Carrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And we have now surpassed the 56.5 million download mark since it all began, and that is thanks to you. Now, be sure to check out our new Investor Classroom series streaming now for free on our YouTube channel. Our new topic is Episode 11, Mastering Options Trading. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Investor. Good night. Investor is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent right, in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.